If you got a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14. Wow, my microphone is going to be in the way of my drinking of water. I have to get creative here. Um, and we've been in Corinthians now, uh, honestly, for a lot of the spring. So if you've been here, you've been in the book of Corinthians with us. And um, we've been studying this book, in particular, the life of the young church in Corinth uh, that Paul is writing to. I say young, it's not necessarily young in age. It's just kind of bring some context. Uh, but newly converted, young in the faith. Uh, they're in a port city uh, where a lot of commerce and everything is colliding. Uh, it's a melting pot of different religions and different cultures. Uh, we've studied that it's, it was a sexually charged city pretty licentious uh, in how they were behaving, and um, that they worshipped a lot of different gods, and so there was a lot of, lot of things happening uh, in this setting. And Paul was writing them because it was a pretty wide open place, a lot of things blending together, um, kind of a stew, a stew of thought and um, ideas, and he's concerned about them uh, because they're becoming divided within the church over a variety of different issues. We've looked at a lot of these different issues. We're going to look at another one of them this morning. But he's really fighting for, he's fighting for their unity. He's saying, I want you to be unified in Christ. And the subcontext for this morning in 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to be looking at uh, gifts again, which we've been looking at for the last few chapters. But gifts, uh, particularly in the context of worship, like where we're at right now in public worship, and the early church, they gathered uh, often to worship, just like we do uh, here at Midtown. And this was another place uh, where there was kind of a laundry list of things where divisions were happening, and there were some abuses going on and some misuses, and we're going to look at a couple of those this morning. And the problem with this, um, and it's a challenge, and so I'm going to kind of ask you to assume a certain posture in your mind and heart this morning before we do this, um, because posture matters. How you prepare to enter into something oftentimes affects what your experience is of that thing. So we aren't going to look at this entire chapter. This entire chapter I could probably preach 40 sermons on. That's a lie. I just lied as a pastor. I don't know. Maybe you could preach 40 sermons on it. Uh, but you could preach many more sermons than I'm about to preach on this text. Uh, and we're not going to be even able to thoroughly look at every little nuance of what we're going to talk about today, of what I'm about to read and so uh, we're going to have to have, you're going to have to have, I'm going to have to have some emotional maturity, some restraint, uh, because we're going to talk about tongues, the gift of tongues and prophecy in Scripture. And I don't know all of y'all's backgrounds. I, Midtown's a pretty diverse place as far as that. So oftentimes when we talk about things that tend to bring division, like when we talked about sex, uh, that tends to be hot flashpoints, like walking through a minefield. And so someone says one word, and your mind's off in a certain direction. And I'm saying, stop. Hang in there. Work hard uh, to not run away down any of the many exit ramps we could take this morning, because I believe the Lord has something to say to us that's overarching uh, these, these gifts of tongues and prophecy. So, uh, and like I just said, uh, we're going to talk about two kind of hot topic things, tongues and prophecy. Let me tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to talk explicitly about all the places that Midtown falls on their views of this. Have these gifts cease? Are they still around? What's their role? 
Should we all be doing these things? All these things are going to be in about what I'm about to read. And I'm telling you, we're not going to be able to cover all these things. They're all important things. And if we were in a more charismatic setting, Midtown is not a very charismatic setting, we would maybe go in a different direction. But we're not going to do that today because I believe Paul, although teaching on a handful of different levels about this stuff, very drilled down on some things, um, on a few certain gifts and how they could be handled, there's a larger, there's a broader brush stroke, a bigger overarching picture that Paul is teaching concerning gifts. And hear this, their purpose, their value, and their ultimate end. And that's where I want us to camp out today. The purpose, the value, and the ultimate end of gifts. Because Paul's teaching that in this passage. And I think it's the thing that's most acutely applicable to our community here at Midtown. So, wow. Monster setup. Here we go. Tighten your belt. Um, If you have a belt on. If you don't, then that didn't apply to you. Um, And it's this. Here's the drill down. Here's where we're going to go this morning. What is the relationship between gifts and glory? If you're a note taker, write that one down. What is the relationship between gifts and glory? I just said over the last handful of weeks, 12 to 14, Paul's been teaching all in 12, even in 13, this love chapter that Joel preached on last week about gifts and their relationship to the individual believer and then the relationship, how that plays itself out within the context of the whole. But this passage in particular brings something into focus, and it's this issue, the issue of glory, the issue of worship. And really, this is kind of the question we're driving at. Whether or not gifts lead to God's glory or the glory of those who display them. So, if you're starting to feel the itch of the poison ivy of where we're going, um, get ready to scratch, uh, because that's a hard one. are gifts given to bring glory to God, or are they given to us uh, to bring glory to us? That's really kind of what we're going to dig into. And glory isn't a word. We don't talk with that word a lot. Like when you run into your friends on the street, it's like, what are you doing today? And no one's like, I'm out just trying to round up some glory. You know? Like, it's not, people don't just honestly say this, like, I just, I'm, I'm working hard to get people to worship me today. But uh, just because we don't use that language, I'd encourage you, um, it's probably not that far off for us. It's probably a lot more accurate than any of us want to admit. And the Lord has kicked the can of this in my own heart uh, this week. What ends up being worshipped when gifts are used. This is what Paul's driving at. So let's read this passage. Can we throw the passage up? This is a long one, 25 verses. So again, don't take the exit ramp. Let's read the whole thing. Verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, No one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. He who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. 
He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and I speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring to you some revelation of knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the flute or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a, distinct, a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks a tongue should pray that he may interpret what is said. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you're praising God with your spirit, how can anyone who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving since he does not know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, though men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That's a quote from Isaiah. Tongues, then, are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So the whole church comes together and everyone speaks. So, sorry, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some of you and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand, man, the language of this is hard, comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convicted by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down worshiping God and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. That's a lot. So what's going on here? Yeesh. A lot. And I'm going to try to walk the tightrope of it for us this morning. The context of the, of the Corinth church. Paul is writing this because the use of tongues and prophecy has become an issue in public worship. So much so that he is concerned about the witness, the people who are coming in who either don't understand or who are unbelievers, and the overall effect that it's having on them, the exercising of these gifts. He desires to make some things clear here. Tongues are permissible. 
Again, remember, we're talking about in the context of the Corinth church. Hang. They need interpretation. They have value, but they are lesser than prophecy. And he's talking about that specifically from the fact that they affect the whole in a certain way that prophecy has a better effect than. They should be used, tongues, in an under control fashion. If you go on to read further down, I don't want you to do that. It's more stuff. But he talks about order and worship. They should be, there should be order with tongues. They should have a purpose. And we're going to get to this. Before we go, I want us to remember this. And we've, this is kind of a bit of a rehash, but it's not totally. The nature of gifts. Because he's saying here very clearly, tongues and prophecy are gifts from the Lord. We talked about this in 1 Corinthians 10.31 weeks ago, prior to even Paul's really kind of discourse here on gifts. 1 Corinthians 10.31, we need to be reminded, who, who gives gifts? And what's their purpose? 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do. Okay, we're talking about very simple things here. Whatever you put in your mouth and eating and drinking. We're not talking about tongues and prophecy and public worship. Whatever you eat or whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of the Lord. Do not cause anyone to stumble. Whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking, listen to the tone here, I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. You're starting to sniff it, aren't you? Whose glory? My own good or the good of many so that they may be saved? 1 Corinthians 12, 14, just a few chapters down, says this. And 4 through 7 just makes it infinitely clear. You can go read it. God is the giver of gifts. And 14, 12, which we just read, we should strive for the building up of the church for the common good. This should be the aim, the bullseye, the target of our gifts is edification of the body. Paul's painting a picture here and it's not an abstract art where we can all stand up and be like, I wonder what he means by this. It's definitive. He's continuing a theme that he's been building throughout the entire book that everything we do, even in the simplicity of what we eat and drink, especially how you and I use the gifts that all of us have been given. Different gifts. Go back and read that laundry list at the end of 12. To bring glory to God. Now this is a, it really should, if you're tracking with me, this should be like a, you know, matrix scene, car off bridge. Holy cow. It should stop you in your tracks. Because this is, this is a very, very hard pill for a modern man and woman to swallow. Culturally, we don't have very much space for this kind of thinking or even this kind of instruction, which we'll get to in a second. Can someone tell you how to use your gifts? Or is that your job to figure out? We are taught consciously and subconsciously from an early age to seek glory. Not even exactly how we're talking about, but glory in the sense of do things that bring value to your life. It goes all the way back, and we don't even have time to talk about this, 
to the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. <laughs> this has been on repeat since then. The flesh has an insatiable appetite to be glorified. So let's go back to the text, verses 1 through 6, and let's see what Paul's stating really clearly here. Um, and hopefully I will do well with this, or do what I'm supposed to do with this. The gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy makes it very clear in verses 1 through 6 that they both build up. We read it, it's plain English. Uh, for anyone who speaks in a tongue, verse 2, does not speak to men but God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, builds himself up. But he who prophesies edifies, builds up the church. Now, I want to just spend a second on this, and we can't run off on this, but just define tongue for a second, and then I'm going to define prophecy for a second. The Greek word that Paul uses here, it's the same word that he uses in Acts 2, and we're going to look at that just for a brief second, is the word tongue, meaning literally an organ of speech, um, common use of, of a language, a tongue, like I'm speaking in English right now. Um, it's plain. It's not, it doesn't have its origin in, in the spirit, meaning that it comes from a man towards God, manward towards God. Whereas prophecy, he makes very clear, is Godward towards man. So let's go to Acts 2 just for a second. If you want to turn there, if not, just write it down. I'm not going to spend a ton of time in here. But if you're familiar with what happens in Acts 2, this is where the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples at Pentecost. The promise, Christ said, hang out, it's coming. Um, and what we see, and I'll read it to you here in Acts 2, verses 3, uh, is a supernatural, redemptive, historical event that happened in the history of the church for the building up of the church. Verse 3, Acts 2, they saw, this is a crowd of folks watching and observing the disciples when they were gathered together. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came down to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So the Spirit's active here, and they're speaking in other tongues. Well, what exactly are they saying? Verse 5, Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Common language. Understandable language. Intelligible this was the supernatural aspect of this event was not that they were speaking some new supernatural, ununderstandable language, but it was that plain Galilean men who had no reason to know that language were talking in that dialect. That was what was happening. That's what the Spirit was doing. It was understandable. The supernatural part was that they shouldn't know that language and they were speaking it. It'd be like if I started, I almost tried to start talking in Spanish, and I can't. I don't know Spanish. <laughs> if I just start talking in fluent Spanish right now. Jose, where are you? That would bless you, wouldn't it, brother? Verse 12, it says this in Acts. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? So the crowd, they don't understand what's going on. They understand what they're saying. Follow this. This is so important to understand what we're talking about this morning. 
They understand what they're saying. They just don't understand what it means. It's a big difference. Most people think that if I hear you and I understand what you're saying, that means I understand what you're saying. Those are two different things. And we're not going to talk about that. That's a whole other sermon. What does Peter go on to do? If you go on to read the rest of that chapter, Peter gives this huge sermon. And he interprets what they're saying. He gives a discourse on who was Christ, what he came to do. And it says in there very clearly, as a result of Peter's explanation, they were cut to the heart, they repented, they were baptized, and 3,000 people came to faith that day. Supernatural, understandable interpretation leads to what? Repentance. Faith, worship, seeing God for who he really is, seeing Christ for who he really is. This was the context that Paul is saying, Corinthian church, worship, repentance unto salvation, glory to God. This is how I want you to exercise tongues. This is the appropriate way it should happen. And they weren't. There was no interpretation. There was no understanding. Half the time, because of the religious syncretism of the day, people were getting hammered drunk and going to, going to the worship service. Coming in, doing all different kinds of things, over-talking. It's like a Nashville concert. I think most people in Nashville think that we pay artists to be background music for our hangouts. I, you know, it's, I heard this, but it's true. Have you ever wanted to just choke someone because it's like, dude, did you just come here to scream talk to this person that you haven't talked to in like two days probably, in all honesty? You guys are talking like you haven't seen each other in eight years. Like, oh my gosh. Anyways. (laughs) Worship had become a background for them to express themselves, not for worship of God. One Greek commentary lexicon says this, Paul's emphasis on this particular passage in tongues. He said, it was the gift of men who wrapped in ecstasy and no longer quite masters of their own reason and consciousness poured forth their glowing spiritual emotions in strange utterances, rugged, dark, disconnected, while unfitted to instruct or influence others. Paul's comparing this to prophecy which the Greek word for prophet and prophecy here means to utter forth a thing which can only be known by divine revelation. Second Peter 1.21 says prophecy, which we understand scripture to be prophecy, the word of God to man. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. This is Second Peter 1.21. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Old Testament, New Testament, the apostles, ultimately Christ, who John 1 makes clear was the word who took on flesh, not just coming to talk about the words of God. He was the word of God. Hebrews 1 says he was, Christ was the exact representation of God. Flesh, word, Jesus came to reveal the will of God, the redemptive plan of God, his means to accomplish that plan, namely himself. 
Paul is making it clear in this passage that the way that the gift of tongues is to be used needs to be appropriate, and they were using it inappropriately. And it was creating confusion, not edifying the whole, bringing glory to God, which is the goal of the gifts that God has given you. If we are one body, like we've talked about just a couple chapters back, we're many parts of one body. You hear the singularity of that? We tend to kind of move towards the individualism of that, like, hey, I'm a hand, I'm a foot, I'm an ear. Awesome. But my hand can't go rogue right now. Like, my hand can't make a decision to hit me in the face. My mind has to tell my hand to do that. Some of you are saying, mind, tell his hand to do that. (laughs) Kidding. You know what I'm saying? It's a part of me. But it's under control. It has its place. It has its purpose. So let's shift gears. Because tongues, prophecy, we don't, we don't, in our public worship, we don't deal with this very much. This isn't a context that we experience very regularly. But underlying this theme, I think Paul is driving at something that will help us get a little more personal this morning because it's pretty easy for us to just be like, wow, it's kind of tough for the Corinthian church. Glad we don't talk in tongues here at Midtown. Let me ask this question. Who gets the glory for your gifts? Whose kingdom are you building with the gifts that he has given you? Gifts and glory are intertwined. Verse 3, we read it. He wants us to speak. The prophecy speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Verse 5, that the church would be edified. Verse 12, the building up of the church. Verse 19, I would rather talk five words of instruction than a thousand in a tongue. You know what's beautiful about this is, and it's hard, this is hard for us. Uh, Tongues was a specific gift that he makes clear there that it builds up self. But he, he doesn't shame it. He doesn't take it away like, like a father who's mad with a kid who, who's misused it and says, give me that. I'm taking that from you and you don't get to use it anymore. Paul doesn't do that here. And the Lord doesn't do that with us. But he says, I want it in its place. I want it to be understandable. I want there to be order and control and restraint to this. So when you think of, a, of your gifts, which maybe some of you don't even believe you have any, and if you do, you're wrong. You just may not know them yet. We do that because we tend to elevate gifts like the one I'm doing right now, as though they're so much greater than the other ones, but we already talked about that in 12. So when you think of your gifts, how do you view them? I mean, honestly, guys, just pause for a minute. What is your functional view of the gifts God has given you? Does anyone get to instruct you on how to use them? Do you like it when someone steps into your life and says, dude, you're so gifted at this, but I think you should use it differently. Ooh, whoa, no one gets to tell me how to do that, man. I'm American. (laughs) You don't get to tell me how to use my gifts, man. Who can give you directives on how you express your gifts? Tell you yes and no. 
Does God have that place in your life? Does he have the authority to put boundaries on how you use your gifts that he's given you? We struggle with this. I'm going to show a clip from a film that has really changed the entire world. You all know what it is. It's First Night with Richard Gere. It's powerful. I think it was up for an Oscar for the C-Rate films. Um, but it's an interesting, or it's a very short clip. If you want to go ahead and throw it up. I'm going to check the time real quick. Yeah, I need to get wrapping it up. Uh, Camelot. Prince Maligant, this guy right here, uh, he was one of the Knights of the Round Table. He has left King Arthur's uh, team and he banded a group of thugs together and now has come back into Camelot uh, to take Camelot by force. And uh, they have an interesting interaction here in a public setting that I think will help uh, highlight really, um, and I would encourage you, how do you identify with this, um, how we understand our gifts? Go ahead. man waking up from a dream. The strong rule the weak. That's how your God made the world. God makes us strong only for a while, so that we can help each other. My God makes me strong so I can live my life. Arthur says to you, serve one another. But when are you going to start living for yourselves? Now this is the freedom I bring you. Freedom from Arthur's tyrannical dream. Freedom from Arthur's tyrannical law. Freedom from Arthur's tyrannical God. I want your baby. Oh. His hair is nice, isn't it? Isn't that? <laughs> tyrannical. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? When someone gives us direction when God gives us direction about how to live, it feels like tyranny. Well, let me encourage you, and I'm encouraging myself with this. If the idea of someone, God in particular, having that type of authority in your life seems tyrannical, there are a couple things. One, we have severely misunderstood the depth of the love that God has for us. You see, he doesn't hold us to a law that he was unable to keep or unwilling to keep or he made up for us. But he came while we were enemies. While we had no ability to uphold that law. He died for us to set us free from the freedom that Maligan is saying is real freedom. Freedom to basically take care of yourself. He set you free from that set you in a different direction. That we would be the bearers of the love that Joel preached about last week. So we've either severely misunderstood that, or the second thing is, is you can be pretty certain that your zeal for gifts is attached to your zeal for your glory. He says very, very early on there in verse 1, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. 
Back in 12, he says it too. 12.31, burn with zeal to add to your gifts. Paul is challenging them that their desire to add to their gifts is not to bring glory to the Lord, but to bring attention to themselves. When you look at your gifts, when I look at my gifts, what do you burn for, guys, gals? Gifts, and in a greater degree, as a child, not because my parents said this with language, but because of the community I grew up in, somehow this got lodged in my head. Figure out who you are and become great at it. Become better at it than everyone else because that's what's going to give you value. That's what will get you the love you desire. Your gifts are given to you to set yourself apart. They earn you the love and the position that you want. A place at the table in the family. It's so ingrained in us that even our service of others, this is like PU, is at times a backdoor way of getting them to serve our need for affirmation. I'm only doing this because I want you to glorify me, love me, worship me, think I'm great. Our misuse, our misvalue of gifts, just like the Corinthian church, reflects a deeper problem, our misunderstanding of the gospel. We'll close with this. Well, we will. I need to close. Verse 20 and verse 14 and verse 15 of the chapter we just read, he talks about the balance between the mind and the spirit. And he says that in there, in your thinking, be adults. Mature in your understanding of the gospel. Mature in understanding what has been done for you in Christ. That nothing you could ever do could add one drop of value to your existence. And then when we had nothing to value in us, Christ gave himself for us. That value is secure. That value is unchanging. And as a result, it actually gives us the context for our gifts. You are now set free to live a life that reflects the glory of God. We talk about it all the time here, Colossians. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verses 22 through 25. This is the, where we really, this just is the head of the nail. Verse 24, but if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be, hear, hear, the, hear the direction of what the person watching, their eyes don't go to the man speaking, they go to God. He will be convict, convinced that he's a sinner and he sits under judgment the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is among you. It's a goal of worship. God tabernacling with his people. Whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do it unto God's glory. Some of you have gifts. Some of them are to teach. Some of them are to listen. Some of you have shepherding gifts. 
serving gifts, praying gifts, creative gifts, artistic gifts. Some of you are excellent planners. Some of you are excellent builders. Some of you are great at care. Some of you are good in mercy, defending those who need defending and protecting those who need protecting. Brothers and sisters, use those gifts to build up the body of Christ. Not yourself. This is the challenge. This is the encouragement that Paul's given us. He's not taking our gifts away, saying, use them under the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we struggle with this. I struggle with this. Um, we get this all wound up so many times um, because we want glory. And uh, Lord, we just, in a moment of gospel sanity right now, confess you are to be glorified. And um, to you alone be glory. And humble us, Lord. Um, We love you. In your name, amen.